Good morning. Thank you. I'm expecting big gifts when I get home. Now, I have three sons, so I'll be waiting a long time. So two of those sons have their own children. So am I supposed to call them, or are they supposed to call me? What's the protocol on that? Yes. I'm so glad to be here today, and I want to tell you, if you're new uh, here today, the real preacher is going to be here next week, so come back next week. Uh, Dave Teixeira is our pastor, and I'm just, I'm, I just want to say again how delighted I am in our friendship and, and how God's using this brother. I love his, his love for the Word of God. He preaches too short, <laughs> but not everybody's perfect, right? So... We'll try to balance that out this morning. <laughs> He's a great guy and just loves the church and has a great vision for you and cares about you. I wish you could listen in on some of the things he tells me about how much he loves this church and how grateful he is to God. And I am too. Um, I just Being here on these two Sundays has just been a sweet reminder to me about how much I love this place. And and I think again and again about the amazing blessings. And now right, right in the middle of Kid Fest and Royal Family Kids Camp, I, think I was thinking about the thousands of children that have been touched in Kid Fest over these years. And now 15 years of Royal Family Kids Camp. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of foster kids. And so many of lives have been changed because you care about them, because you invest in them. And, and so many other ministries in the church. I'm just, I'm just delighted with what God is doing here and grateful again to be able to open the Word of God with you. So will you take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Have a bit of a challenge this morning. Dave assigned me 24 verses. I noticed that he doesn't preach through 24 verses. And I told him that, that you got a problem for me because I tend to be a teacher more than a preacher. And, and, and I want to talk about every one of those verses. But I won't this morning, but we'll do the, do the best that we can. Oh, my mic. Did I do it again? Okay. Last Sunday, <laughs> last Sunday I uh, walked down to sit with my wife, and Carolyn said, where is your microphone? And I reached up, and I patted the side of my face, and I said, it's under my shirt. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I, I did it again. Wow. When you get a little older, you start slipping. And it's amazing. <laughs> the guys in the back were amazing because this microphone is under my... I put it under my shirt, by the way, because I talk to people, you know, before the service. And a lot of people are intimidated when you have a microphone on because they're not sure if somebody is, like, listening in. And Anyway. Thank you, brother. Can you hear me better? Okay. All right. I don't know where I am now. We're talking about Luke chapter 10, and we're continuing in this series that we're calling The Journey, Learning to Live Like Jesus, which is like our lifetime quest, isn't it, of learning to live like Jesus. You would think by now that I would have this figured out, but I don't. I'm still learning to live like Jesus, and he continues to teach us, and I think he's going to teach us, for, teach us forever and ever. 
but we're, that's our journey now, as we're trying to learn to live like Jesus. And, and this passage that we're looking at this morning, chapter 10 of Luke, is this fascinating portion of the Word of God where Jesus sends out 72 workers into the villages and the towns where he's going to go. He's on his last mission, if you will, before he heads to Jerusalem to die for the sin of the world. And he wants to visit all these villages and towns. And so he gathers together 70 or 72, some Bibles say, of his disciples. And he sends them out two by two into the villages and towns to prepare them for his coming to them. Because he is going to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And so these disciples, if you will, are messengers of the kingdom. Now, this is a unique period of time in, in the gospel account. It's unique in the sense that it was never repeated again like Jesus just did this one time. And this is a very unique situation that they're going to do. So not everything applies to us, but the principles definitely apply. And and we will see some things, I hope you will see some things, that Jesus is saying something very similar to us. Because we too, listen very carefully now, we too are messengers of the kingdom. Yes or no? Absolutely, yes. If you've been called to follow Jesus, if you've been forgiven by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, then not only are you called to come to him and be with him and to be with other people, but you are also called to be sent out by him into the world. You too are a messenger of the kingdom of heaven. So these principles will apply to you, and I hope that you will find them helpful. For example, the first thing that Jesus does, he sends them out two by two, which is incredibly brilliant when you think about it. Not everybody does. We tend to be pretty independently minded, but I learned in a hurry, particularly when you go to some place like Africa or Asia, to go as part of a team. I mean, I just will not go alone uh, because you need somebody. You need a brother or some brothers and sisters there to pray for you and to hold you up and to encourage you and, and to pray while you're talking and you Pray while they're talking and, and you help answer questions. We need to function as part of a team. So if you ever are called by Jesus Christ to go somewhere and you can take someone with you or go with them, then this is wise on so many levels. But I see six other things in this passage of Scripture. And so I just want to work through them pretty quickly. And I hope that you will see, I believe that you will see some practical applications in your life because you too are a messenger of the kingdom. So let's dive right in. Fasten your seatbelts. Verse 2, it says, He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. The first thing to do is to pray for more workers. Now, I am really aware at this moment that you have heard sermons on this passage. Pray the Lord of the harvest that He will send more workers into His field. The harvest is great and plentiful. You've heard it, so you don't need a lot of explanation about this. The thing that I want to point out to you is before Jesus says anything else to his his disciples, he tells them to pray. To pray. Now, one of the things that's happened to me in the past few months of my life is I've begun to be increasingly grateful for people who believe in prayer. Um... I hope that I always have, but now I really am because I've experienced in so many ways in the past few months the reality that when God's people here pray, things happen over here that might not have otherwise happened. 
you would think by the time that you're a Christian for as many years as I've been a Christian that I would have this prayer thing figured out. I don't. I, I don't know. Can anybody explain how prayer works? You know, what? Like there's some complexities to it, and so we, you know, we, we're just, we're a little confused by it. But what I do know is that some people, even though they, it's a little complex, they just pray because they know that God said to pray, and so they pray. And what I've experienced so many times is one of the things that God's done for me is sort of like thrown me out into situations like in India, North India, where I don't know the language, I don't know the culture. Uh, I'm going to be with people that I've never been with before. Um, I'm usually going with some new team members. We're going into a new environment, new food, uh, new temperature. Everything is just radically different. And sometimes I get exhausted. Sometimes I get confused. Other times I'm not sure at all God is going to use me in this place, you know, and then God just gives you what you need. And amazingly enough, he uses you. And I've experienced it again and again and again. And then I come home and I discover somebody will write me an email or talk to me and say, you know, when you were in India, I was praying that God would give you wisdom and energy and strength, you know, and that he would give you an extra measure of love so that they would Feel love, the love of Jesus flow through you. All I know is, when you pray, God does things. And Jesus is saying, first of all, look, the harvest. He's not saying, look, the need is huge, so pray. He's not saying, look, you know, the field is so big, so pray. He's saying that the harvest is great. He's saying there are many souls to be won. There are people who will come to me and who will respond to the message. The harvest is great. So what we need are more workers. I've had people tell me we need 10,000 people doing what I'm trying to do in Africa, in Asia. 10,000 more. Because their training is so limited and so there's so few people that can get to Bible college and get the training and education they need. 10,000. And, and this is even sort of a new thing for me. And then I think about all the places where, you know, where the gospel has never been and never gone and and the, and the laborers are few, the workers. So what do we do? We pray. For those of you who believe in prayer, which like all of us, of course, right? For those of you who believe in prayer, can I say to you that, you know, the tendency that I've had for so many years is, is doing is more important than praying. And now I'm beginning to realize I've probably had that upside down. I'm so grateful for people who know the value and the power of prayer. I've experienced the blessing of God because people pray. When you want God to do something, you better pray, my friend. And now Jesus is saying, pray that God the Father will send out more workers. Second thing, Jesus says, is expect danger and opposition. It's a fascinating phrase that he uses. He says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Very graphic picture, that one. Lambs among wolves. Imagine it. Imagine yourself a lamb surrounded by a pack of wolves. This is a rather frightening picture. The fascinating thing is that Jesus never hides the dangers. He never says to his disciples, oh, it's all going to be okay, you know. You don't have to worry about anything. You'll be victorious in every situation. You know, you're going to you're the wolf, not the lamb. You know, he says, "No, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves." 
He's saying to them, I'm, you're going into a hostile environment. You're, you cannot expect that people are going to receive you and welcome you and wrap their arms around you and treat you really well. In fact, you need to be aware that you're going to be rejected and you're going to be treated badly by some people. He says to them in John 15:18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You want to follow Jesus? Some people hate Jesus. Have you, know, have you realized that? It boggles me that some people hate Jesus. And they love to persecute the followers of Jesus. And they despise you because you follow Jesus. And God in his mercy still has a heart for people like that. Vance Habner wrote a long time ago, Anyone who takes Jesus Christ seriously becomes the target of the devil. But most church members do not give Satan enough trouble to arouse his opposition. Ouch! And I thought to myself, do I, do I give the evil one enough trouble to raise his opposition? Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the motivation, like make the devil really mad at you. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. Or not what Habner is saying. He's just saying, look, you know, so many of us, you know, we're just not raising that much opposition to the evil one. Lambs among wolves. Jesus sends his lambs among wolves. Who's the lambs? Who are the lambs? That's us, my friends. What chance does a lamb have among wolves? Not much, unless you have a really strong shepherd. Third thing, trust God and focus on your purpose. I've tried to figure out how to summarize what Jesus is getting at here in verse 4 when he says, Do not take a purse, that's to be a money bag, or a bag, that would be to carry extra clothes, or sandals to carry. He's not saying go barefoot. Just don't take a bunch of extra clothes and a change of sandals. Don't take money, just go. And by the way, this is what's unique about this situation because later on he will send the 12 out and he'll say, now this time when you go, take a bag and take a purse and take a change of clothes. So this is a very unique situation that Jesus is doing this time because he wants these disciples to go out and he wants them to proclaim that Jesus is coming and the message that the kingdom of heaven is near. And he wants them to tell people that and he wants to do it fairly quickly. He wants to cover all these places where he's going to go. And so he tells them, do not greet anyone on the road. So Jesus is not saying, I want you to be really rude and offend a whole bunch of people here. He's really saying, I know that here, that greetings can be very elaborate and very time consuming. It's part of the culture. And some of you have been some other place in the world where you enter into a room and you start these greetings and and it, it like takes you 30 minutes You know, just to do the greeting that everybody does. Jesus knows it's like that. And if you are going to a village and you're stopped by a whole bunch of people and you do all this greeting, you're never going to get there. You're going to waste or take hours and hours. And Jesus wants them to get there because the time is short. He wants them to get to the task. And not carrying anything with you, not having any bag or purse or any money, is going to convey several things. One is it's going to convince you that you're dependent upon God to meet your needs while you're doing this. It's also going to convey to everybody else that you are on a mission and that you're not trying to take care of yourself and it'll, it'll really communicate great and serious commitment. So Jesus says, go, like streamline, go and do it and do it quickly because this is why I'm sending you. The fourth thing Jesus does is he's teaching them to humbly seek the good of whoever will receive you. And he uses this fascinating phrase in here that missionaries have seized on in these days. 
And many of you are aware of this. He says, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house, which is the typical Jewish greeting, peace to this house. And then he says, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. It's a little confusing to us. But to those disciples, they knew exactly what he meant. And many missionaries today have figured this out, particularly in places around the world where you go to a village that's like totally Muslim and they don't want any Christians there. Or you go to a place where everybody is, is Hindu or Buddhist and missionaries have been thrown out of there and missionaries are trying to figure out, now how do you get an inroad into a place like that where, where they don't want any Christians and so many missionaries have seized upon this little phrase, a man of peace. And they've discovered something, that almost every time in a village, even a village of, where there are no Christians, there will be a family or a person who will be considered a man of peace or a woman of peace who is interested in receiving more spiritual enlightenment and is interested in receiving and being hospitable to new pe- people coming in. And so these missionaries, they go around and they try to find this person that they call a man of peace. So missionaries today are taking this principle and God is blessing it and it it opens a door to to the message of the gospel. For Jesus, it was just saying, look, you go to some place and when they receive you, you stay there. But if they don't receive you, then you move on. You know, you say if you, there'll be a blessing if you receive what I have for you. And if not, then... Then we just move on. Don't get upset. Just leave and move on to a more receptive area. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. Can I tell you how many times that phrase has come back to me? Um, and I've tried to say, no, this is a unique time, you know, in the scripture, so, you know, and tried to, but... It sort of rings in your ears when they honor you with the very best of their food and usually a heaping like mound of food like you just can't hardly believe it. So many times people are very poor in these places and they and you are an honored guest. And so they bring you this huge quantity of food more than they have like for their whole family. And they they just want you to delight in it. And it's so hard sometimes to delight in it because it's so different. Right. What Jesus is saying in this in, in this situation, he's really saying, look, when you go someplace and they serve you, you just eat what they give to you. You don't look for more. You're contented with what it is they give to you. You do what Jesus did. You practice contentment and humility and gratitude. And you don't look for more. Because when Jesus says, do not move around from house to house, He's reminding them of this Jewish thing that happens to so many rabbis in those days. They would go to a village and they would bring teaching with them. And if somebody received them and welcome and say, and here's a little room you can stay in, rabbi, and you will teach us, you know, and if, and if they're good, then something that would often happen is a rich person would come along and say to the rabbi, I have a much nicer home and place for you and you will be much better cared for. And so they would take the rabbi to the rich man's house. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. If you've been received by the man of peace, you eat what he gives gives to you and you stay right there. Because this is what Jesus would do. Not to try to improve his own lot, you know, or not to sort of cater to the rich person, but to be humble and content 
and grateful. Verse 9. The fifth thing is, Jesus says, meet the needs of people. Meet the needs of people. He says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. I want to ask you, do you see the physical and the spiritual part of that verse? Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. It's physical and spiritual. And Jesus is saying, heal the sick, which is a pretty amazing thing, right? That just pray for them and heal them in the name of in my name, in the name of the God who is sending you, heal the sick. And it's that power to heal that is the stamp of, of certification, of authenticity, that the message about the kingdom is genuine. It's the miracle so many times that Jesus used to open the hearts of people to the message that he was going to give them because his primary purpose was to teach them about the kingdom of God. But it's the miracles so many times that help them to understand this is the man of God. So now he's giving this power to his own disciples. Heal the sick. Heal the sick. And it will open the door to the message you're going to give to them. Now let me tell you another thing that I've learned in the past couple of years. It's been a fascinating ride for me. And some, in some ways, some of my doctrines have been shaken a little bit. And because I've seen God do things and know, heard about God doing things that I sort of are outside of my experience. This ever happened to you? You begin to realize God can do whatever he wants to do. And he always has been doing what he wants to do. But our view of him is he only does this or he did that a long time ago and he doesn't do it. You ever heard this one? He doesn't do it today. Uh, the most vivid illustration for me has just happened a few months ago in February. I was in Nepal and we were, we were training a group of pastors and they were almost all young men. And I was fascinated by this because they're almost all in their 20s and early 30s and some even like 17 or 18 and they're pastoring churches. And, and they had like very little training. Some of them had like six weeks in a Bible school and that's it. And they're pastoring these churches and they're so delighted that we would come. And I wanted to hear their stories, but the problem was is they don't speak English, you know, or very little English and I don't speak Nepalese. So we had, I had this translator. So I, you know, I started asking them, so how'd you become a Christian? Do you have Christian parents? You know, and I asked one of the guys, I said, how many of the pastors here, like 70 of them, how many of them come from Christian homes? And, and he looked around and he said, maybe two or three out of 70. I said, well, how are the other, well, how are the others raised? They were all raised in Hindu families. They're all converts out of Hinduism, strong Hinduism for centuries. So then I was interested. So I wanted to hear a few stories. How did you come to Christ? So I asked this young man, he was, he was probably 24, and he had a church, and I think it was about 100 people. And he's, you know, and he wanted to talk to me. And, and anyway, we had this great conversation. So I asked him, how did you become a Christian? He says, it was a miracle. You know, I, I became a Christian. And I said, will you tell me a little bit? And he told me this story. He said, my mother, my mother, when I was, when I was young, when I was probably 16, my mother got sicker and sicker. And then we thought she was like oppressed by a demon because the spirit would come over every once in a while and she'd get really violent. She picked up knives and she wanted to kill my younger sister. You know, we had to restrain her and tie her up sometimes and run her home. And then this 
this thing would leave her and she'd be okay and she'd cook meals and she'd be all right for a couple of days and then it would come back, you know, and then she got sicker and sicker and we thought she was going to die, you know, and, and we had all the, all of our gods in the corner of the house, you know, there's this little area where they're, they're Hindu gods, the ones that your house worships and, and we prayed to these Hindu gods to heal our mother because we thought she was going to die or she was going to kill one of us and we didn't know what to do and my father didn't know what to do and, and we prayed and we prayed and nothing happened. She got worse and worse and, and then finally, she got so sick and so bad that we thought she was going to die. And so my father said, let's take her to the Hindu priest in the village. And so we, we carried her basically to the Hindu priest, you know, and he did a whole bunch of really strange things, things that I don't even know what he was doing. And, you know, and he was making sacrifices and everything. And, and, and we took my mom home and she got worse and worse. And she got, now she's in bed and she can't hardly get up and we think she's going to die. And then a man came through our village. And he started talking to people about Jesus. And the Hindu priest stirred up a bunch of the people to try to get this guy kicked out of the village. And they drove him out. They drove him out. And he was, you know, we, we never saw him again. We never actually got to see him. We just heard about him. But then about two or three weeks later, he came back. And my father opened the door to him and said, come in. And we served him a meal. And my mother was lying in the next room. And we thought she was going to die. And this man said, Jesus can heal your mother. And my father said to that man, if Jesus heals my mother, we will all become Christians. And the man said, can I see her? And they took her into the bedroom and he knelt down. He, this young man said, I'll never forget. He knelt down and he put a hand simply on my mother's shoulder and he prayed that Jesus would come in power and heal her and cast out any evil spirits and heal her. And it says she opened her eyes, and from that moment she was different. And within a couple of hours she got up and she fixed us a meal, and she, this spirit never came back again. And she was she's still alive. And you know, and then my father said, "We're all Christians." <laughs> you know, and then and the man left, and the man left, and and we never saw him again. We don't know who he was. You know, we just know he just brought the message of Jesus and he laid a hand on my mother and healed her and it was like this miracle and now we're all Christians. And about two weeks later, my father said, we don't know what a Christian is. You know, so what are we going to do? You know, and he said, we have to move. We have to move to the next village because I know there's some Christians over there and they will teach us how to become a Christian and what does it mean to be a Christian? And so they moved and this young man said, I knew that I was saved and he, and he became a pastor, you know, and that's how I met him. And I said, how many people here have a story like that? And he said, almost all of them. It's been one of those deals where God has moved in in power in places where the gospel has not penetrated and has done some things that... In, when he moved to North India, the story so many times is visions and dreams. In the Middle East, it's the same kind of thing. So God has his ways, but we've got to send more workers because they need to hear the whole gospel. And they need to learn how to figure out how to be Christians. What I'm saying to you is that Jesus, way back then, 2,000 years ago, gave his power to bring healing as a way to open the door to the message of the kingdom of God, physical and spiritual. Does this have any application to us? Of course, my friends. You've got people and friends that you know that have both physical needs and spiritual needs. 
And by the way, I don't think God is done with that whole work of power yet. Now, if you're like me, I'm really highly dependent upon the medical system in the United States, and maybe that's one of the primary ways that we get healed of things. But I want to tell you, you move across the world, and there's no medical system, there's no doctors, there's no hospitals, and they just believe that Jesus has the power to heal. And I wonder if we ought to ask him more than we do. On the other hand, you know that sometimes he says no. I don't have the answer to this. All I know is what Jesus said is pray, heal the sick, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you because that's in the heart of the Father. The next thing is, the sixth thing is, give serious warning to those who reject. And verses 10 through 16 are really Jesus talking about the seriousness of rejecting. He says, when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. But be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. This is very graphic, right? I mean, you can imagine these disciples doing this. They say, we don't want you here. We don't want Jesus to come. They say, okay. And they go outside to the edge of the town and they take their robes and they shake off the dust in their robes and they dust off, the, take the dust off the bottom of their sandals and say, we're moving on, but be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near and you've turned away. What is it? It's a warning. It's a serious warning. The most important thing you are rejecting, this isn't a rejection of people, this is a rejection of the kingdom of God. You have an opportunity to hear about the grace of God and you reject it. So we're moving on. The kingdom of God is near. That's what Jesus preached. The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus begins talking about Sodom. He says, it's going to be worse for you if you reject the grace of God than it would be for Sodom in the day of judgment because they never had an opportunity to hear. It's bad to be full of sin. It's worse to be full of sin and reject grace. Did you hear what I just said? It's bad to be full of sin. It's worse to be full of sin and reject grace. And Jesus then goes on and he starts talking about other cities. When you read the scripture, you hear him talk about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And he says, he's basically saying, I was there. I was among these people. And they saw the miracles of God and they, they have rejected. And it's going to be difficult on the day of judgment. Harder for them than even those back in the Old Testament. Serious verses. Then we go on to verse 17 and we see now the joy of the messengers. I love this. The joy of the messengers. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Just about the time you think you know what Jesus is going to say, he says something like that. I mean, they're delighted, right? Wouldn't you be delighted if you went someplace and and you ran into a demon-possessed person and you said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, be free, and and the demon left because you had authority in the name of Jesus over a demon? Wouldn't you be like, whoa. Does this ever happen to you where you just know God has given you power in a situation? It brings joy to you, doesn't it? And you're so grateful that you have experienced the joy of God. This is like, you get this, right? So this has happened to you and you're grateful and they're delighted they're just full of joy and then jesus says i saw satan fall from heaven like lightning 
And the Bible scholars have a lot of fun with that phrase, trying to figure out what did Jesus mean? Is Jesus talking about way back in eternity past? Is he talking about now when these messages are sent out? Is he talking about the future when the evil one's going to be overcome finally? What's he talking about? And they don't come up with any really good conclusions. So the answer is, I don't know. The thing that I do know is that Jesus has supernatural sight. That he sees things in the spiritual realm that no one else sees. And I believe he's talking about all of these things. And particularly now he's talking about the fact that the messengers have gone out with the message of the kingdom of heaven and they've worked the work of power against the evil one to overcome the evil one and demons. And now we see Satan falling into defeat. And one day it's going to be finally complete. And I think it's something that Jesus wants us to see by faith. To believe very deeply in your own heart that greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. This is going to be increasingly important, I believe, in the days ahead. Because I don't know if you think that evil is increasing. I do. It's becoming more and more apparent to me in so many times and so many ways and around the world. The things that are beginning to happen in America have been happening around the world for a long, long time. They're a little surprised that we're so stunned by them because so many of God's people around the world have been experiencing this for a long time. But it's increasing, my friends, and, and people don't know how to explain it. They want to talk about upbringing and education and all kinds of things. And when you look very deeply, the only real explanation you can arrive at is is evil. So what do we do as followers of Jesus Christ, as messengers of the kingdom in these days? If it's true that this is increasing, what do we do? How do we respond? What I want to suggest to you is that you recognize that there is evil that you see. Isn't there? You see any evil anywhere? It may not be somebody killing people next to you, but you see evil and you see the evil one working in so many subtle kind of secret kind of ways to destroy people and ruin people's lives, to destroy the family, marriages, kids. And you see the confusion that so many people have and the lack of understanding of what life is and the values. And it just goes on and on and on. We see it everywhere. So what do we do? I want to make sure that I say to you this morning, my friends, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Son of Man came to destroy the work of the devil. Do you know it? And that he's giving power to you as a messenger of the kingdom. You may not be able to work great miracles of power, or you might, but he has given to you authority. To overcome the evil one. You need to look at evil that you see in the, your life, in the lives of your children and your grandchildren, and wherever you see it, and you need as much as you possibly can to believe that greater is he who is in you. And that, that the Savior came to destroy the work of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. He mentions snakes and scorpions, and people get all entangled in that, and some people think you need to handle snakes to show how much faith you have. Which shows how weird we get. You know, I just. Again, is this physical or is it spiritual? It's spiritual, my friends. Look at the words of Jesus. You have authority and you overcome. This is not about physically handling snakes, 
This is about the fact that the evil one is a snake. And he's a scorpion. It destroys and kills. And you have authority, and you have been given authority to overcome. There are such things as powers of this dark world. Paul talked about that, the principalities and powers. And sometimes we lose the battle, and you might just die if you lose that battle. But Satan's power is limited by our king, and he gives us his power and his protection. Jesus could see it. He could see the final days were at hand. And that's why, by the way, in in the book of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, the last paragraphs of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, Paul agonizes that Christians would get it, that we would get the power that God has given to us. And I think my problem is that I've been so immersed in knowledge. I love knowledge. And knowing and teaching and facts and all those kind of things, I've sometimes missed the whole thing about power. And when you believe God, you'll take some risks. And when you believe God and take some risks, you will see God work in power in ways that you never knew he would. Verse 20. The greater reason for joy, Jesus very gently redirects them. He says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, uh, get a little balance here now. Now, you're excited and joyful about the fact that demons submit to you, but let me tell you what you should really be happy about. You should be really happy about the fact that your names are written in heaven The greatest joy is not based upon power or ministry or service. The greatest joy is based upon the grace of God. He wrote your name in a book. All right, faith check, my friends. You believe there's a book? No, I mean really, a book. Might not be white pages and black ink, but a book, a real, literal, actual book in heaven. With your name on it. Hmm. You really buy that one? You think that's literally true that there is a book in heaven with your name on it? How many of you really believe that? I mean, really, seriously. You believe there's a book in heaven. With your name on it. Some of you are not so sure. You're going like, well... What do you think? The book of Revelation mentions the book of life seven times. And your name written there. And a name written there will never be erased. You believe there's a book? My friends, what is it that keeps you solid and going when life is coming apart, when you fail, when you make mistakes, when things are not working out the way they're supposed to, when you realize that following Jesus is not an easy thing at all to do, when you realize you've failed Him, when you realize you've failed your family or your wife or your children, when you realize that there's so much hurt and pain in this world, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that establishes strength in your life? One of the realities is certified by this idea that your name is written in a book. And if it is, you're good. You may die, but you're good.
Still believe it? You think you'll ever get to see the book? I'd like to see the book. The greatest privilege of the Christian is not work, it's not ministry, it's the grace of God. That God, don't ask me when your name was written, I don't know. All I know is that my name is written there. And I'm so grateful. Jesus says, so rejoice in that. You want a reason to rejoice? Rejoice in that. If you don't have any other reason to rejoice today, but you know that your name is written there, rejoice in that. Then listen to the joy of Jesus in verse 21 to 24. At that time, Jesus, full of joy. That's a weaker word. It really means Jesus is thrilled with joy. Something's happened inside of him and he's just like overcome with joy through the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Jesus, now full of joy, says, I praise you. For, now he's praying. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned it and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Wow. Why would Jesus be so happy about that? You see, because Jesus listens to this report from these messengers he sends out. They obeyed him. They did his will. The Father met their need. He worked miracles through them. You know, and Jesus looks at them and says, You are little children. And what I think is happening here is that Jesus is just delighted in the wisdom of his father, that his father's strategy and his plan is nothing like anything we would have ever come up with. If anybody had ever said, Carl, you designed the plan of salvation and how the gospel is going to go out into the world, I never would have come up with the way he did it. Right? The way he did it was is that not the wise and the learned and the, the powerful and the rich. You ever heard somebody say, oh, if they ever became a Christian, they would be so influential for the kingdom? You know, or somebody does become a Christian, somebody who's famous or rich, you know, or powerful, a great politician or somebody who's wealthy. And we think to ourselves, maybe we are right. It's nonsense, my friends, because the plan of Jesus has the plan of the father has always been to pick little children to accomplish his purpose. So who's the little children? It's us, my friends. We're the lambs. We're the little children. We're the people that God will use for His purpose. Wherever He has placed you, whatever he, wherever He sends you. And Jesus is just overjoyed, filled with joy about this fact that the Father does this kind of strategy. This is the scheme of God to take people like us to accomplish His purpose. How cool is that? And we forget sometimes. Verse 22. I call it the centrality of the Son. It's one of the deepest places in the Word of God. All things have been committed to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. All these disciples are looking at Jesus trying to figure out who He is. Who is this one who can do things like this? Who gives us this kind of power? And Jesus is thrilled with joy inside of himself for the fact that little children are now being used by his Father. And now he is thrilled with the reality that he and the Father are one. And this is one of the deepest places in the Word of God because it explains some of the mystery of the Godhead. And I can't even begin to explain what it means to you. The one thing that I know is that it, it, it 
communicates the centrality of the Son. Everything is about Jesus. So when we say again to, again to you that He is the way and the truth and the life, it's because He is. He is. He is the center. If you don't get anything else out of life, if you get Jesus, you have it. Let me ask you a question. Do you know God? You, I mean, seriously, do you know God? Has God been revealed in your mind and your understanding because you know Jesus? Do you know God because you know Jesus? Has this actually happened to you? Where you could actually tell somebody, I know God. The creator of heaven and earth. I know this one who created all things. I know the one who is perfect and holy and infinite. I know him. I don't know everything about him. I only know a little about him. But I know him. And why do I know him? Because of Jesus. My friends... You have something that so many other people do not have. Do you know it? Which leads us right to the next thing, verse 23 and 24, the staggering privilege of being kingdom messengers. He turned to his disciples and he said privately, now he's brought his disciples apart, and he says, Blessed are the eyes who see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you understand? For generations, people long to see what these people see and to hear what these people have heard. My friends, now we move it into today. And do you know that for hundreds and thousands of years, people have longed to see what you see and to know what you know, to hear what you have heard, to believe what you believe, to experience what you have experienced? You've got people who live across the street and across the world who don't have never seen, never heard, don't get it, and, the, and as far as we know, they, they might not ever have an opportunity unless some messenger of the kingdom goes. My friends, you get to see and you get to know. Do you know this? You know things. You know things, don't you? You see things. You hear things. You believe things. You have experienced things. And you can walk across the street from your house and talk about some of the things you see and know and people will look at you with a blank look because they haven't seen or known. My friends, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to make you feel privileged that you have received this immense grace from God. Do you know it? You might respond like some people, I got problems, you know? Yeah. You have this immense privilege. The question is, what are we doing with it? That's the question. Trying to figure it all out and unravel it and say when and how and all is not the question. For years of my life, I wrestled with the question, why me? Why me and not other people? I could never come up with a solution to that question. I still don't know the answer to that one. What I do know is that Jesus is saying, what are you doing with what I've given to you? This immense privilege, this amazing thing that you see and you know and you hear and you get it. What are you doing? What are you doing with what it is I've given to you? Last question. Do you see yourself as a messenger of the kingdom? Do you see yourself as a messenger of the kingdom? That's a yes or no. I want to say to you, Jesus does. 
your Jesus does, see you as a messenger of the kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience with me. Dave will preach shorter next Sunday, I promise. Father, help us then, we pray, to receive again once more into our hearts and be changed a little again by the immense privilege of grace. We need you to do something in our hearts that no one else can do. We're so wrapped up in our life and our challenges and the questions we have and the uncertainties and the fears and and the good things and the blessings and we're just entangled and sometimes we forget the great things of grace, the grace of God. We're so grateful that we see and hear and know and experience we do all that because you love. You love little children like us. Help us to know what to do with what you've given us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll take a few moments to take the Lord's Supper together. So I invite you to come and take a piece of the bread and return and the cup and return to your seat. And we're going to take it all together as a family of God in just a moment. The tables are open.